Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guide podcast. This is your host for today, Jessica Finley. Uh, what do I define myself as? I don't know. A lady that likes swords. And a <laughs> Seems appropriate. I don't know. It does. This is your host for today, Jessica Finley. I am in Lawrence, Kansas, and super excited to be your host for today. Join us for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with the usual host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman. And anything else you would like to say about yourself, Guy? No, I, I think you know that, Jess. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so... Oh my goodness. I've been so excited since you brought up the idea of me interviewing you for this anniversary edition of your podcast. And um, whew, as you probably know, Guy, but maybe your listeners don't, I really enjoy very deep conversations. That's my favorite. Um, so I com came up with a few general topics around which we might begin to dive in. And then we'll see where it ends up, because I, I don't really know. <laughs> okay. Well, thank God we can edit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so um, the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about things I would like to hear you expound upon, um, I know you have mentioned that you have a new wood shop in your back garden. Ah uh, no, I don't. I don't. No, no, no I thought no, no. you did. I built, I built a um, a Pilates studio for my wife in the back garden. Ah, uh, that studio is for my wife. That is not mine. Okay, uh, but I, the, but, I, but I did put it together. So, <laughs> I, and I already have a woodworking shop in the back garden. So that's. Oh, it was just an old one that was already there. Yeah, mine was the old one that was already there, and the new one was for my wife's Pilates studio because, I mean, she got first refusal on the – when we moved into the house, she got first refusal onto the on the shed that was already there, and she was like, no, no, it's not quite. So I took that for a woodworking shop, and we sort of sorted out um, laying the foundations and building her something a bit better. Lovely. That's yeah. awesome. Are you ever going to get to go in there to do your warm-ups or lead classes, or do you – Plan to um, do that from your own space. I would probably prefer to do that from my own space because her studio is going to be full of um, Pilates torture equipment like racks and um, pillories oh. and things like that. So, you know, yeah. by, by which I mean ladder barrels and reformers and other, other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I don't know. In the States, sometimes Pilates can mean... Um, you have a yoga mat and you're working on the ground. Oh um, yeah, she does that too. There's, yeah. there's, there's the mat yeah. stuff, but but the, the the stuff she really needs the studio for is her reformer and ladder barrel and wonder chair and a special big mat thing that folds out and has handles and stuff. And there's there's this weird post thing with it looks like chains hanging off it, but it's not. I promise, it's not chains. <laughs> Uh, literally, everyone who comes into the house um, thinks they've wandered into a very oddly equipped dungeon. <laughs> I can understand that. And having having had a few lessons on a reformer, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot. <laughs> so 
Um, okay, so your experience then, um, maybe we should start with, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your experience in training in carpentry and woodwork? Um, okay. And then maybe we can explore how you see handcrafts um, for creation purposes, creation of a physical mm -hmm. item, intersecting with uh, the same art for creating a martial art. Okay. Um, okay. So I've always been into blades. Anything sharp and shiny is good. And... I've also always liked woodwork. And one of the reasons I like woodwork is you have very sharp blades. Um, there's a connection there. And after I graduated from university, I talked my way into a one month sort of internship at an antiques restorers and then went to Finland for a year and sort of made some money here and there restoring furniture. And then I went back to the UK and I spent a year and a half, maybe two years in a big antiques furniture warehouse big enough that it employed uh, the exact staffing varied but five full-time cabinet makers three or four full-time polishers as well as specialists for actually carrying the furniture um so it was, a, it was a pretty big outfit so i got to handle lots of really interesting antiques and then i got a job uh, with a chap called patrick baxter in the borders of scotland and that was primarily making high-end furniture from scratch, including things like inlays and you know, all that sort of thing. So I wasn't actually formally taught at any point. It was more um, uh, sort of learning on the job. And that's, that's pretty much how I've always preferred to do everything. I don't, I don't go and get all the qualifications and then do the thing. It's a good thing I don't want to be a, a medical doctor, isn't it? <laughs> Because then you really have to go and get the qualifications first. <laughs> but no, I'm more like, well, show up and start doing the work. And eventually when you've actually done the work, you know, 40 hours a week for long enough, you're, and you approach it in the right way, you're bound to get better at it. So, right. and then, you know, I, I did that with my school. I'd been running um, historical martial arts club in Edinburgh called the Dawn Duelist Society uh, since we founded it in 1994. And then in 2001, I moved to Helsinki to open a school as a professional instructor. But, you know, there were no qualifications to be had. So I didn't have any. I just went ahead and did it anyway. And it kind of grew from there. Right. So, um, so for you, so, it's intrinsically linked because your tendency is to learn in that way. Uh, yeah. And there's... Okay. When you open up a piece of old furniture, uh, there's often been previous repairs. And in fact, one of the biggest reasons you ever have to restore an antique is because some complete moron went and filled it up with the wrong kind of glue or did something stupid, right? right. And an awful lot of antiques restoration is undoing bad fixes. So, but the way I see it, when I'm restoring a piece, I still do a bit every now and then, I'm in a conversation with the original maker, everyone who's restored it since, and some bloke or a woman in a hundred years time who's going to probably be doing the same repair. Yeah, because you know, furniture tends to wear out in predictable ways and you fix it and it's right, but it's not going to last forever if it's actually being used. So, I mean, like, like for instance, you know, when you pull a drawer out of a 
chest of drawers, the bottom wears away a bit yep. right, every time. And so one of the things we do is replace the runners in the case and build up the sides of the drawers to kind of recover the wear that was there, the wood that was missing. And, you know, that's going to have to happen again at some point in the future. And the thing is, what you want is for them to look at that drawer and go, oh, that was nicely done. Right. (laughs) Right. And particularly on the inside, right? On the parts Mm. where probably your client doesn't particularly care. Yeah, they don't see it or care. Right. Right. But But that's where your true craft shines and is important to you and to a future uh, expert in the same field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the client is just the owner of the piece. I mean, they're going to be dead before the the piece is, the piece needs fixing again. So really, as long as they look after it, they don't actually matter. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, In some ways. Yeah. And, you know, we can look at historical martial arts as a massive project of antiques restoration. Right. You know, we have these arts, but they have fallen into disuse and they have become broken down and rusty. And we're, we're having to assemble them from parts. And actually, it reminds me a lot of the difference between antiques restoration, where, let's say, you take your chest of drawers into the restorer and they fix it up the way it needs to be fixed, and then it comes back to your house and you put your clothes back in it and carry on using it, right? And then there's museums conservation, where, let's say, there's a, a piece missing then it may need to be replaced for the thing to have structural integrity, but they'll tend to replace it with, for example, clear perspex. Mm-hmm. So the piece has all its necessary parts, but you can see what is original and what has been repaired, right? So they're not, they're not interfering with the, with the piece's position as a, as a historical artifact, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, you see that same sort of approach in, oh, and, and people will sometimes, you know, take a perfectly good piece of furniture and convert it into something that's more, that they need more, right? They'll, they'll take a, an armchair and cut the arms off or they'll take, a, um, I mean, the classic is there's a whole um, kind of type of furniture, which is basically a smart bit of furniture for keeping your chamber pot in. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Right, right. So you can have a crap in your bedroom. And nobody does that anymore because we have plumbing. So those bits of furniture have tended to be converted into other things, right? Yeah. And that's, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, as long as you're not interfering with something of historical value. Um, but, you know, we see these varieties of approaches where some people looking at the historical sources, trying to recreate the art of arms, are very, very, um, they they come at it with like a conservator's point of view. They want it exactly what's in the book, nothing outside the book. And they are trying to, they're trying to sort of recreate this particular pattern of movement or thought pattern or tactical structure or whatever. And that's the point. Right. It's historical or it's, it's historical value is the point. Whereas others want to actually, you know, fence their friends or fence in tournaments or whatever. And so they take this thing and they 
add to it as necessary, adjust it as necessary, so it fits in with what they want it to do in their lives. And there's, as long as, as long as nobody takes something that has been radically altered and tries to pass it off as an original antique, there's no problem. Right. <laughs> right. As long as, you know, as long as there's intellectual honesty in play, I don't see any problem with any of those approaches. So my mind was going crazy, but I was trying to listen and stay focused. Yeah. Um, and so what occurs to me then is mm-hmm. in the recreation of historical martial arts, where we have put in perspex is not evident. If that is our approach, if we are trying to approach it as a conservative, right? Um, um, well, it, it's all in how you present it. Okay. Right. Uh, you, you know it's there. And the thing is, that, that only becomes relevant... The distinction only becomes relevant when you are displaying what you're doing to people who might be misled. Correct. Okay. So literally one of the finest historical martial arts demonstrations I have ever seen was in, uh, it's about 1999, 2000 at this, um, British Federation for Historical Swordplay, a group in, uh, kind of a federation in Britain that I helped to found many moons ago. And the guys from the Sussex Rapier Society, I think it was, it was Duncan Fats and Andrew Feast, and I am blanking on the third name. Um, but anyway, one of them was reading from Saviolo's text, and the other two were doing the action. Right? Their interpretation of that action. Correct. Right? And that was absolutely flawlessly historical martial arts. Because it was literally just the words in the book brought to life. And you can, you can hear the words and see the actions and the interpretation is clear. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closest thing I've done to that would be my From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice book. Where there's my transcription of the plays from Fiore, Longsword plays, transcription, my translation. So, you know, you know what I think the Italian says, you know what I think the Italian means in English, and then my interpretation, and then a video clip of me doing it. Right. Right. So you can disagree with any level of that, but all my working is clear, right? Yes. So you might, you might find a mistake in the transcription was, or you disagree with my transcription and then that makes you disagree with my translation, which makes you disagree with my interpretation. Or you might think the transcription and translation are fine, but you don't interpret those words that way, yeah. right? But the point is, it's absolutely transparent what has been done, okay? Whereas, for you know, take my medieval longsword book or course. There's much less quoting from Fiore. And much more, okay, take these techniques and we put them together so you learn how to actually move in this way, Mm -hmm. right? So you learn how to actually do these things and then learn how to improvise with them and experiment with them. And um, I mean, I guess another way to think of it would be the difference between memorizing a speech from Shakespeare and improvising on a speech with Shakespeare, a speech from right. Shakespeare, right? If you do it verbatim, great, that's one thing. If you take the same story and tell it in a completely different, you know, 
venue or, or you know take you know a, um, a uh, I once saw like the Revengers tragedy which is not Shakespeare it's um, oh I'm forgetting never mind but it was set in like gangland Chicago right it was absolutely brilliant it was certainly not what Shakespeare intended oh, not Shakespeare certainly not what the original author envisioned because he didn't know anything about gangland Chicago and Chicago at that point I think was just a plane or a swamp or something right it didn't <laughs> even exist but um, <laughs> but but it you know it, it was a really interesting take on the literature and no one no one showed up going oh that's not historical enough right right because that's not the point exactly and you know I'm actually working on a project right now where you know George Silver's book Paradoxes of Defense I do right and, you know, he's a bit of a crusty old bastard. Absolutely. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I've got an actor to do an audio book of George Silver's Paradox of Defense in modern pronunciation. But I've also hired an actor called Ben Crystal, who's like one of the world experts in Shakespearean original pronunciation performance. It helps that his dad is a linguist in that area. Um, and he's doing a, um, an original pronunciation version of George Silver, right, of Paradox of Defense. And it, the difference is extraordinary. And they both sound good, right? Right. But my heart's with the original pronunciation. Oh, yeah. It oh, just... yeah. I am so excited about this project. I cannot tell you. I am hoping that there are ridiculous puns that he runs across. Them, they there probably be. aren't. But they probably aren't. I don't. George Silver was. I mean, he does tell some funny stories in his book, but he wasn't writing to entertain. He was writing to admonish. I know. <laughs> so, so I don't think we're going to get any of those Shakespearean filthy puns that we get with the original pronunciation of Shakespeare. Uh, but I'll ask Ben what what he thinks when he, when he's done the whole book, which should yeah. be well. We're recording this twenty something of April. It should end of April. It should be. I should have the recordings. Oh, so, so excited. Yes. Also, I am thrilled that you hired uh, actors to do this, to have a Silverian attitude. <laughs> well, yeah. Also, you know, acting is a craft like martial arts is a craft. And, right. you know, people who do it for a living tend to be better at it. So They're fantastic at it. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I, I, got, I got Kelly Costigan to do my theory and practice audiobook because she's a swordswoman and an actor and she's a professional actor. And so, you know, she could, she would take a, um, a, a paragraph or whatever and read it one way and then read it a different way and ask me which way was the sort of way I wanted it done. And, you know, it was just, it's, it's not just, this is how I speak. It's like, no, 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 we can speak like this. We can speak like that. Do you want this accent, that accent? Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's yeah. wonderful. Oh, it's so exciting. So, so can we circle back around to you uh, learning cabinetry or restoration on the job, as it were? Yeah. And so would you then say that since we were linking your idea of your, your Practical Swordsman series um, into this, that that's the equivalent of you showing up not knowing anything and just putting in your time 
until you began to see what was before you, right? And understood what needed to be done. Is that a, a useful equivalent before maybe you pick up Fiori um, because you have that preparation? Or would you feel differently uh, about that? Well, I, I picked up Fiori in like 94. So well, I, didn't know I know you did, but maybe <laughs> oh, okay. people listening now have another option. They don't. So, so, wait, so when you said you, you didn't. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Um, so yeah. I mean, when we you can say, talk when about you what you had to do. We should no, talk okay. about what you had to do. But yes, yeah. when you said you, I understood me, and you meant people in general. Okay. Yeah. It's because because English only has the one you these days. It used to have the and you, that. which we should, shouldn't we? Um, <laughs> anyway, other English. <laughs> Okay, so some people uh, want to go straight to the source and they find other people's interpretations sort of a distraction at best and an annoyance at worst, right? And again, that is a perfectly okay approach, right? It's, it falls down only when, if they start publishing their results and they haven't done the literature review. In other words, they haven't seen what everyone else has done first and, uh, and, and put their work into the context of all the other work that's been published. Correct. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's a critically important bit of any kind of academic undertaking. Okay. Again, most people doing historical martial arts research are not professional academics. So, so this sort of thing does kind of happen. It's like when people say they're doing a translation of, I don't know, Vadi, for example, and they are, not looking at anyone else's translations to keep themselves pure for the text. It's like, that's not how this works. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> right? That's, right. It's a very sort of naive way of going about things. Um, so, so that's, but a lot of, most people want to just pick up a sword and swing it around and have fun with their friends and, fence each other and do the sword thing Correct. they're there for the sword thing okay and making them we all are well no not everyone really not everyone i i have met people who are absolutely fascinated by the history students who come to my school to train absolutely fascinated sure. by the history have no interest in ever actually fencing anyone they should come to me and say do i have to fence anyone or can i just do the drills well that okay that's true i have had people there yes Right. For whatever. Because that's, because that's their interest. Yeah. And yeah, okay. So, and that's perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly fine. If that's how you want to, I mean, it means that you're never going to get to a particular, to pass a certain level as an actual swordsmanship practitioner. But if that's not your goal, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so, like when you're, uh, but most people come because they actually want to defense. And so, what a lot of my work is doing is making that easy so they can pick up the sword and figure out how it works and start working on the basic techniques and string them together into longer drills and add complexity to those drills and whatever and build up their skills in a kind of sensible way. And very often, but not always, at some point in that process, they start looking at the original sources, Mm -hmm. right? Not always, but some do, right? And I've, I see that side of my work as basically creating the gateway drug to the sources, right? It doesn't get everyone hooked, but it gets a lot right. of people hooked, right? Which means we get more and more minds turned towards 
analyzing the sources, which can only be good for everyone. Yes. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So let's look at it then from, from the perspective of teaching this thing. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and obvi- I mean, obviously we can all only present for our students who we are, what we are, and, and our best knowledge of the thing at the time, right? Like you're not sure. going to show up as 1999 guy and be like, well, this is where <laughs> I started. So I'll start you here. No, and, no, you no, know, no, no, you no, too no. Oh, no. will, will take this journey. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, no, right, no, right. But when we're looking then, right, to teach, since we're not, we're not going to be teaching all of our errors or what we now perceive to be errors, we are teaching um, from our, our reconstruction or from, yep. from our, our thing that's been put together invisibly. Yep. What do you think that benefits our students and are, is there anything we're missing? Right. When, when we are working from an invisible reconstruction, shall we say? Um, okay. I try to make the reconstruction visible. Okay. Yeah. Right? Uh, so at any time, if I am teaching a particular technique from a particular source, I will usually have the book open on a lectern somewhere in the hall so people can go and look at it. Right. And I am, you know, I will sometimes you know, read out the text and if necessary, translate it. And, you know, so, so they know where it's coming from, generally right. speaking. Okay, but it really depends on what the focus of the class is, because if I mean, a lot of people will show up to my classes because they want guy to teach them how to sword fight the way guys students sword fight. Right. And so they will be there for skills development and I will do what I can to set things up so that their skills improve. Okay, And that has absolutely nothing to do with the historical sources at all. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, well, it, it's, it's, it's based on the, the right. actual actions are coming from a source and the tactical theory is generally coming from a source, but they're not studying the source. They're learning how to fence. Correct. Okay. And that is a, uh, that is just a different goal to learning how to read a treatise or, or learning how various elements of a system put together or discussing the tricky points of translation or, you know, those are, those are all separate fields. So, you know, in any given seminar or class, I am teaching usually one thing. And that one yeah. thing will be determined entirely by what the students want. Yes. Yeah? yeah. Very often they don't want me to explain why I think it is the way it is in terms of historical right. research. They may want me to, to explain it in terms of mechanics, but that's not coming from historical research. That's coming from practical experiment and study of mechanics. Right. right. So, you know, cause to my mind, it really boils down to what do the students actually want? Because I mean, if you think about mm. it, this is what I said at the beginning of, of every seminar I teach pretty much. I think you do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I say, look, if 
Let's say it's a longsword class. If I am Fiori Delivery, that makes you lot the Marquises of Ferrara. Okay? So what do you want? It is the student's job to tell the hired professional what their goals are and then enlist that professional's help in getting more efficiently towards those goals. It is not my job to tell them what to do. It's my job to tell them how, what to do in order to get where they want to go. But it's up to them whether they do that or not. Correct. So, um, but this, this, and, and I'm a fan of that approach and, mm-hmm. and I believe in what you're saying. Um, I wonder about the number of students who can't answer that question for you. Uh, most of them. Right. But that doesn't so matter. Then, so then is it your job to usher them through the process of determining their answer? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Right. I mean, I, I start that in day one of the beginner's course. Yeah. Right. Literally where, you know, we'll be doing some, some basic dagger stuff. Let's say a, a disarm from first master and, so, you know, your left hand takes the dagger away and you stab. And so when they've done that for a little bit, I will ask them, would you like to see the same technique done against a different attack? Or would you like to see the counter to that technique? Yeah. Right. And some of them will want the counter and some will want the disarm against a different attack. And whichever the class, as a, you know, whichever is the biggest group, we pretend for a minute that the class is a democracy and we go with that. Right. Right. So that they are trained from the beginning to have an opinion about what they study next, mm-hmm. right? Because we're not in the business of creating soldiers or creating, um, you know, obedient workers in any you know, field, right? We're in the business of training dualists who are the most opinionated and self-willed <laughs> group anywhere. And if you don't have a strong opinion about what you think is right and what you think is wrong and you know, and, and you're willing to literally stand up and fight for that opinion, then you're not really a dualist, are you? Right. So, so, but again, but the thing is, like I so said, when I start my seminar, I'll ask them what they came for and they will tell me. Yes. Some, some of them will tell me. Okay. And so I take those various things and I put it together into a class plan in a few seconds and then just kind of say, well, okay, we'll do this first and then this, then this, then this. And, okay, you wanted this thing, which is a bit different, but you can focus on that aspect during this drill. And so the people who've expressed an opinion actually get that opinion at least heard. Sometimes it's not practical to include it in the class, but 99 times out of 100 it is. Okay. And then that's what the seminar is. That's what the class covers. So, and I ask them all at the end of every class, um, you know, firstly, is everyone healthier than they were when they started it? And secondly, can we agree that if you didn't get what you came for, it's your own damn fault? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right, because it's, it's not up to me to tell them what they should do. Now, sometimes, like let's say we have a big, first day of a beginner's course, they have told me what they want already. What they want is day one of the beginner's course because that's what they've signed up for, Right. And the, what they are looking for from me is to stay safe, to get to play with the sword, and to get a kind of picture of what it's going to be like training here. Mm-hmm. So that's what I give them, because I already have their implicit consent for that. Yeah. Right? 
but I'm actively encouraging them to look for areas of interest already on day one. The thing is, most people don't teach this way because firstly, they haven't been taught that way and neither have I. Right. I, I sort of came up with this like over the course of many years. Right. It wasn't like that in the beginning. When I started my school, I was extremely strict. Right. And the reason for that was I believed that I was responsible for everyone's safety, which I still believe. But I, the only way I could think of to uphold that responsibility was to control everything that happened so that nothing bad would happen. Okay. So we needed this very strict and formal environment so that it would be safe mm -hmm. right but over the course of many years of doing this all the time i figured out that actually if the culture is set in advance such that safe behavior is expected almost all people will conform to that and all i really need to do is kind of hold the safe space Keep an eye out for things which are heading in a dangerous direction. And that's enough to keep everybody safe. Because they're trained to train safely from the beginning. Right? And the culture expects safe behavior. Yeah. You know, most, most people don't behave outside of the norms of their culture. No, for sure. For a variety of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So that allowed me to sort of let go of the controlling everything all the time, you know, I'm the boss, do as I say thing, and flip the hierarchy on its head. So that now, like, formally and technically, I am not actually in charge of anyone. Correct. Right? My students are my employers. They are my patrons. They are um, Niccolo Deste to my Fiore. They are the king of Denmark to my Fabris. Right. And so they tell me what they want. And so long as it's within my areas of expertise and it doesn't violate any professional ethics, that's what they get. Yeah. So I still, I still have my boundaries, but within those boundaries, they get what they ask for. Right. Now, so the idea of turning the hierarchy on its head what, if any, I suppose, um, work did you have to do about your own anxiety, shall I say, or your own discomfort? Or did you find any discomfort in letting go of that controlling nature? Because oh, I think God, it's it was a really a common... It was a relief. It was a relief. It was a relief to let go. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, God, it was lovely. Ah, oh, that's amazing. I love it. It was like... I, you know, I, I don't particularly like ordering people around. Right. Right. You're quite good at it, though. You have. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 okay. But here's the thing, right? It's like one of, one of the things you're expected to do as a martial arts instructor is you're expected to hold the space, right? Yeah. To keep everything safe. Yeah. Right. Which means you're able to set boundaries for everyone else as well. The thing is, you have their explicit permission to do that. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So it's like one of the things they've hired me to do is keep everyone safe, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, 
at the beginning of every class if there's people there I don't know or who haven't trained with me before. I will say there is only one rule and that is everyone finishes training healthier than they started it. Right? You've probably heard me say it. I have. Right? And that is literally the only rule I will insist on and I get everyone's buy-in for that before we start. Yeah. Right? And if anyone doesn't want that, this has never happened, but if anybody was could accept that, well, then they can just leave. Yeah. That's fine. If they think they need to hurt themselves in training and then, I mean, there are, I guess there are mad, mad people out there, but, but so, so far everyone has agreed that finishing training healthier than you started it is a pretty sensible goal. Correct. Yeah. Though often people don't understand how to keep themselves safe. They right, may but, but then be quite concerned for their partner's safety, but their own safety, they often will disregard. Right. And which is why I always tell them that most injuries are self-inflicted. And again, part of my job is to train them in how to train in such a way that they don't hurt themselves. Because again, most people are socialized to not hurt each other. I remember um, taking a lesson from you at WMAW. It was in a seminar. Um, so I was definitely not alone. I don't know how many people we had in that gym, but it was um, your sharps training. Oh, seminar. that one, yeah. There was about 40 people in that. Something. It was there a was big a class. lot of people in that room. <laughs> there was. Um, and I was super excited about that. And I remember you... Um, the way you handled that was that the only way someone got to hold your sharp sword was to cross swords with you, though they had been working with a partner up until that moment. And, right. and you indicated that that was because you felt personally responsible for everyone in the room's safety, which right. um, I found as, uh, as your student in that moment, a very, a very profound responsibility was placed on me by you saying that you were taking the responsibility. Okay. So it was a fascinating experience. Um, yeah. We, we should probably student. just, I, we should probably yeah. just explain to the listeners what that class was about. Oh, please. Um, yeah. Just, just because like I, I'm not, I don't just routinely distribute 40 sharp swords to a group of people I don't know and say, go on, have a go. No, right. um, <laughs> that's a terrible plan. <laughs> no. So, but what I, what I do, if, if, if this is one of the things I am asked to do, is I bring a couple of sharp swords to the seminar and we do a long sword seminar. And at one point I'll set up a basic drill and everyone is training this basic drill. And I will go around and do sharp with sharp versions of that drill with every student that wants to. Right. So I just kind of wander around with two swords and go, OK, it's your turn. There you go. Da, 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 and spend maybe a minute with each student. It takes a while because there's you know, 40 students in the room. It took most of the class was that. But the point of that class was to give each individual student that experience of what it feels like to have two sharp blades or a sharp blade pointing at you and you controlling that with your own sharp blade because it is fundamentally different to most other training experiences. Right. So it was. I mean, I've done that many times. We've never had any injuries. In my own cell with my senior students, when they are practicing stuff, they will do it with whatever tools are appropriate. They might be in full kit and have like sparring weapons with rubber tips. They might be in T-shirts using sharp swords against each other or any 
you know any variation on on that i mean they they will choose the appropriate tools to practice <clears throat> to practice the thing they need to practice and that is my students in my cell under my supervision that is not a bunch of somebody else's students and a whole bunch of people from other clubs as well in some enormous space somewhere um, where they don't even have like socialized medicine so <laughs> right right and, but no, it, and, it's super safe and it was it was brilliantly done like as a student i felt completely comfortable with that room well as a student and as a teacher myself like that runs right. seminars i was like this is fine everything that yeah. is happening here feels even more safe than i imagined it would be and i already knew it would be so right um yeah yeah um, but, but yeah, that, I think that there is something at play there. Um, when you are, when you are playing with the dynamics as an instructor of who is in charge of this moment, sure, right. Um, where, whereby as, as the person nominally in power, because yep. you have, you have whatever a title and you have skills and you have, you know, um, the job of running the class or whatever, um, to then say to the student, but also you're in charge, um, creates a very intense feedback loop of responsibility for the moment. Sure. That I think is is quite brilliant. And I've I appreciated that <laughs> oh, um, as a student. Yeah, I, it, it reminds me of something like if you have, let's say a general in the army is driving up to the gate of his own army base mm -hmm. with his own soldiers inside and the private at the gate will stop him and require to see his ID. Yeah. And the general can't say, I order you to open the gate. The general will show them the ID. Right. Right. So because it's understood that that structure keeps everybody safe. Yes. Right. If there are no exceptions that can be made and the private can never be court-martialed for demanding to see an idea, not letting somebody through without it, mm -hmm. then it just keeps everything safer. So likewise, if the students are the generals and I'm the private, there are rules that they have empowered me to enforce for their own good. Correct. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, safe practice and... You know. Yeah, yeah. And an observation I would make about that is that when, when you were, well, let me frame it as a question. Mm -hmm. When you were running your class um, where you were much more structured, where you were very much in charge, where you were trying yeah. to control every moment of every everyone's interaction, yeah. um, did... Did that ultimately end up less safe, do you think? No. Or no. Okay. It was definitely also still fine. Yeah, yeah, it definitely wasn't less safe. It was it was differently safe. It was safe for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um It's like, well, yeah, we're both parents. I you you can prevent your children from cutting themselves with knives by banning them from the knife drawer. Not that I keep my knives in a drawer. They're on a metal strip on the wall because, you know, I wouldn't put knives in a drawer. 
Um, but you can ban the children from touching the knives and have a kind of strict control over their behaviour so that they never touch the knives. Or you can allow them to handle the knives and to maybe cut carrots or whatever to begin with under your very, very close supervision and then, you know, gradually less and less supervision and, you know, my kids have been chopping vegetables since they were tiny and have never had a serious cut. Right, I heard you talking have... about that in more depth with Ruth, which was lovely. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so check out that if you have. Oh, yeah. The episode with Ruth Goodman, guy. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Speaking with Ruth Goodman about knife use, please check that one out because it was great. And, and, it's, and it's also a question of trust. Yes. Right? Yeah. So if you, if you can, people generally reward trust with good behavior. Yeah. Right? And if they know you trust them, they will feel more guilty about violating that trust than is worth whatever that violation would be, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I trust my students um, in all sorts of ways which are baffling to some people. Like, oh, for instance, like since forever at my school, we've always had, there's the grown-up price for training and then there's the, well, should we say the fully employed adult? That's one price. And about two thirds of that price is the everyone else. So students and unemployed people and whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And I have never once ever asked to see anybody's entitlement to pay the lower fee. Nope. Right. Yeah. Because why would I? Right. Right. I trust my students. If I, I'm going to trust them to swing a sword at my face. Right. <laughs> right. And so I trust them with that. And I'm sure, you know, if you dig through the records with a really forensic approach, you will probably find a few people who probably should have paid the higher price but paid the lower one. But I guarantee you, you'll, you'll fi- also find people who would have been entitled to pay the lower price but could afford to pay the higher price, so they did. Precisely. Right? Precisely. Because it's a question of, I trust you to behave reasonably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my school right now and for the foreseeable future is entirely on a sliding scale that the student sets. Okay. That makes sense. I'm like, you can, you can walk in and pay me $0 for this half hour, or you can pay me $25 for this half hour, like, yeah. or anywhere in between. And I have a literal, like, well, it's in the shape of a cat, but I have a piggy <laughs> bank and that's where okay. the money goes. So they don't even have to hand it to me. Right. That's better. Yeah. And so, and, and so at, and it's right next to where their shoes sit. So as they right. go to get their shoes, they could or could not drop money in there. And either way, I'm happy. And, you don't and even know honestly, yeah. as you have found, most people pay plenty. They pay sure. what I consider the generous rate, you know? Right. Yeah. Because um, I've empowered them to do so. Yes. And, and it's, it's, we're not there, I don't know, like legal guardians. Right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's 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 the relationship is based in, entirely on on trust. Anyway, when you're training, right. And right. You will find that you know if you train long enough with enough different people, you will definitely find people who you don't trust to train with. Correct. Right. You'll come across these people and you just avoid them, and yeah. that's fine. Right. Well, now, and I was going to ask about that. Okay, you know, ahead. with your experience, and I know it's hard to do on a 
on a podcast, but but could you speak to maybe someone who is running a club or, or is newer at a club? Like, what are your first few warning signs of like, no, you know, uh, what I what I call the busey, right? That this person walks in with eyes that are crazy. And like, to me, that's, that's, you know, uh, my mnemonic for someone I don't want to train with is, okay. is crazy eyes. And then they're out, you know, I, I don't allow them in my space. Um, but, but that's not particularly helpful. So I wonder if you have more concrete um, things that you could point to early in your interaction. Okay. It's really, really hard, especially, especially for sort of fairly well established instructors because people will behave one way to me and completely differently to other people. Oh, for sure. Right. So it is really difficult. I would, uh, I would strongly recommend reading Fear is the Mind Killer by Kaya Sadowski. Right. Excellent book. And follow her recommendations about a code of conduct. And the thing is, anyone who is unwilling to sign a code of conduct that basically says, I will be nice to everyone. Right. You don't want them training with you. So there's, there's a good filter you can, you can put in. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, a lot of people coming to a martial arts school for the first time are in an unfamiliar environment and they will tend to be a bit shy, a bit evasive, a bit, you know, particularly in, in countries like Finland where everyone tends to be fairly shy anyway. When they're showing up to a beginner's course, they're usually very, very shy, right? Yeah. And that can mask all sorts of positive traits and it can also mask negative traits. So Correct, yeah. So what I tend to do is when I'm, let's say I'm, I'm teaching a class with a group of people I don't know, which actually happens more often than not these days because I'm, I'm back in pre-COVID times and, and soon in post-COVID times, I fly around a lot teaching seminars in places. So I show up and there's a bunch of people there I don't know. So what I do is I have that little chat with them first and I pay attention to how they're interacting with the rest of the group. And then when we run a warm-up, the warm-up is primarily for me to see them doing what they're told. In other words, following what I'm showing them. Okay? And I'm watching for all sorts of like things like um Yeah, it's, it's got nothing to do with like physical prowess. You know, some people are super fit yeah. and some people aren't, and some people struggle with it and some people don't, and that that's irrelevant. Um it's basically their attitude to it. Yeah. If they're if like that I, kind I've of I've seen like eye rolls, for instance. Bingo. Eye rolls. Eye rolls are a major red flag. Yeah. Because yeah. if they're if they're rolling their eyes at what you're getting them to do, they don't belong in your class. Yep. Yep. And I, you don't, it's not a good idea to confront it directly, generally. Nope. But what I tend to do is put in an exercise, which I can tell from the way they're moving, they can't do. Oh. See, how they, see how they cope with it. Okay. Now, let, let's be perfectly clear. There are a bunch of exercises I can't do. Yeah. Right? That yeah. maybe this person can. But there are definitely some exercises that I can do that most people can't. Yeah. Right? Because I have that specific training. So I put in a bit of that. And 
see how they take it. Yeah. If they get angry, then they need to sit up. They're done. Mm-hmm. If they go, oh, it's not all shit here, right? And the eye rolls stop, then then we're good. I've kind of demonstrated my right to be there and they're okay with it. Yeah. Because, you know, the eye roll thing is massively disrespectful, but, that, but, the, but that's not it. The thing is, if it's not unreasonable for them, particularly if they've paid money and traveled some distance, to to need kind of proof of value. Yeah. Right? And my, my very gentle warm-up does not usually give proof of value to that sort of person. No. Right? So I give them some proof of value. And if that's, that works, then great. And if it doesn't work, then clearly I'm just the wrong instructor for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are people, I know, when I, when I stopped being, shall we say... Um, the boss and started being the consultant. Um, I had students quit because what they wanted sure. was infallible sensei, master sir, who will tell us what to do. For sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, abs- that's absolutely fine. I mean, lots of schools run on that model. And if that works for you, then that works for you. Um, yeah. But, but there's no obligation on me to be that thing. Because that is not my nature. Mm-mm. I do know yeah. people who, who do do it very well, and it is their nature, and they're fine with it. Yeah, uh, and, and their they, students and probably are as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with your eye rolling? Oh, you know, uh, so I am more of a fawn-type personality. So my tendency then would be to uh, use humor to see if that's going to solve the problem. So I okay. would almost do the exact opposite. So you would provide a an exercise they couldn't do. I would provide this is how much I can fail in front of you. Okay. And either they're going to go, oh, okay, we're not taking all of this as serious as I am in my head. Right. Or they leave. Right? So it's... Yeah. It's getting to the same goal, but literally from the other mm. side of the other side that, of the spectrum as I see it. Yeah, and that, and that raises a really good point. It is really, really important that you fail in front of your students so they know that you're supposed to fail at times when doing this. Yeah, that is super important. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to an eye roller in the in the first few minutes of a class, but right. I would absolutely include it at some point during the class. Yeah, and see, the thing is, it well, and this is probably worth mentioning is that I frequently do not get an eye roller because that person also self-selected themselves out of a class taught by a woman. So of course, yeah. <laughs> that is, yes. That's actually a very rare problem for me. I also don't oh, run good. into the, the person there. Well, just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't run into the person who has shown up wanting me to prove to them that I'm a badass or that is looking to prove themselves against me. That is yeah. rare. I, I, I I've had a bit of that, but person. not that much. Oh, sorry. I've had a bit of that, but not, I've had a bit of that, but not as much as you think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I do run into is the person that has put me on a very strange. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
where they're yeah. like, oh, you know, I can't wait to get my ass kicked by you. And I'm like, I, like no, I'm like, not going to kick your ass. Right. You're 250 pounds of like weightlifting muscle. Who do you think I am? <laughs> but yeah, you know. So it's it's funny, though. So all of these, I think there are a lot of approaches that can work for the teacher in their um, in their habits and in their exchange, because I agree it would not work well, probably for you to prove worth through failure. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas it would not necessarily work well for me to come with that kind of conflict of I'm going to out-exercise you. Uh, yeah, but, okay, I should probably clarify how I do it. Well, right. I, like, I, I spoke inelegantly, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like, because, it's, again, I don't, I don't ever direct it to that one person. This is no, done I for know. the class. Yeah, yeah. And what I do is I take something like the push-up, twisting, squat, jump, burpee, yep. right, where you start in, like, a push-up position and you do a squat thrust, and then you stand up and then maybe you do a squat thrust and a push up and stand up. And then you maybe do a squat thrust and a push up and you jump and go down into a push up, squat thrust, jump. And then you push up, um, squat thrust, jump up, turn in the air and come back down again. And it gets very hard quite quickly. Right. Yeah. And so I'm very good at controlling my breathing because I train mm -hmm. breathing training a lot. And so I will talk them through that whole thing while doing all of this stuff. And most people usually die at the twisting jump. And so then I just keep going and say, and what's really fun is if you breathe out completely and see how many you can do before you have to breathe in again. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a useful trick, but that's, that's for the whole class and it's fun and it's da da, da and you know and right. but it, it tends to anyhow people can stick at whatever level they want maybe just a push up and stand up or a push up and a squat thrust and stand up or whatever they don't have to go through the whole thing but the whole thing is there to kind of illustrate the scale of difficulty that a single exercise can offer correct right um, and, and also also very quickly demonstrates uh, anything I show you with the swords that seems simple, you can now assume I have taken it to levels you are not going to see in this class. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah, to me, that's yeah. that's what it does, you know. Um, because I find that a, a useful... That's another way I'll do it, right? Is yeah. If we've gotten to swords and then there's eye rolls, mm -hmm. is that I will do something something similar with like the play we're working you know, yeah, yeah okay. this is where it starts, but then we go here and 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 then we go here, but there's no time for that today. So we're going to stay, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So anyone who's ever taken a class from Dr. Guy is now going to think through any warm up where they saw this behavior and they're going to wonder who in the class was the eye roller. Okay, I, I, of, I, I also often do it when there's no eye rollers in class. Honestly, honestly. It's, it's, just, it's just if there is an eye roller, then I usually will pull something like that out. But of course, now I have to think up another one. Oh, yeah, your secrets are out. <laughs> oh, somebody listening to your podcast is probably not eye rolling at your seminar guy. 
Probably not. Probably not. So. And honestly, you know, there are enough people who like my stuff. I don't have to worry about the ones that don't. It's true. It's true. Other than for the safety aspect, right? Because they become unsafe yeah. if they're willing to be that rude. Or you can assume. Oh, yeah, but they're, they're not going to be doing it in my class, so I'm not responsible for their behavior. So That's right. Anyway. That's right. So I know we've gone way over time, and you're going to edit this. No, 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 no. no. We, we, we've that. got all the time in the world. Okay. We have, we have um, all yeah, the time. Yeah, I have one more hour, and then I have to go to my physical therapy, so we can't have okay. one more hour. All right. Um, but so one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and this is kind of like leeching back into history mm-hmm. of, of like a conversation you and I had at WMAW, like in, in the late evening, late night, wandering mm-hmm. around as one does at that event. Yep. And um, uh, at the time I was moving or had just moved away from my school and I was fearing, feeling a lot of sadness about that um, and not really knowing if the school was going to survive or not or if these people I had taught would would continue on. And I was feeling mm-hmm. that it's a reflection of me in these things. And, and I know that that's something that comes up for a lot of people because whether, whether they have founded something and are moving or, mm-hmm. or, or just don't want to lead it anymore, but yeah. feel an attachment to the thing they've created. I wonder if you could speak to that because I know you have, you have moved a few times and probably in that sure. time have started and left some clubs. So um, yeah, okay. Well, I started the Dawn Duelists in Edinburgh. Uh, it was formally founded in 94, and I left Edinburgh in 2001. Um, and I had no doubt that the, the DDS would do just fine because it had a bunch of enthusiasts running it, and at least one of the original founders was still running it. And it was all, you know, I had no, no issues leaving that. Um, then when I moved to Finland in 2001, and started my school then when we moved to the UK in 2016 I had already retired from teaching kind of regularly in the evenings and weekends um I retired on my I think it was my 42nd birthday Mm -hmm. that sounds right uh so November the 30th I was like okay I will teach up the end of this month and then you guys take it from here and I was in country for another six months before actually leaving for the UK. So I was there if they needed me, yeah. right? And they didn't call me once, right? Yeah. And then I flew off to the UK, we all moved here, and I, I'm i aware that I cast a long shadow over there. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that, you know, it's... You know, they they are weaned off me, as yeah. it were. So I go back, you know, when travel is allowed, I go back like once or twice a year, no, two or three times a year, usually teach a seminar, hang out with some of the students, catch up with what's going on. I mean, it's still my sat. Right. right. I literally own it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, you know, it's, I'm still connected, but it's, I don't run it. I have no hand whatsoever in the day-to-day of things. And it was hard, but again, it boils down to trust. I had to have faith in the good intentions and, should we say, willpower of the people who were running it. Mm-hmm. And so I did. 
and I trusted them just to get on with it and to have the wit to come to me if they needed anything I could provide. Yeah. And they were fine. Yeah. It's like you know, kids, kids grow up and leave home, and if you've done a decent job as a parent, they do fine. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, it's, it's, and, and, and you know, if, if your child never leaves home, you have failed as a parent. True. Yeah, le- leaving aside sort of medical issues or, or disability or whatever, but on the normal run of things, if your perfectly mentally and physically healthy child is still at home, then, I mean, when they're an adult, then you have to wonder, like, mm-hmm. why? <laughs> right. Why or why haven't they moved on? Um, right. And we see the same thing with, with students. Like, yeah. uh, it is not for every student, but for many students, what they really need to do is start their own thing. Yeah. Right? They're not ready to do that, so they come and train with you for a bit, sometimes years or whatever, and they usually train really, really intensely because they're really, really into it. And then they get addicted to having a teacher and everything kind of done for them, as it were, the sal is there and the weapons are there and the students are there and everything. And when they should be starting their own branch or their own breakaway club or whatever, because the next stage of their development requires them being in sole charge of something. Yeah. Then it can sometimes take... Um, take the form of basically they build up a head of resentment like an like a like a teenager they build up a head of resentment which is what they need to have the kind of energy to break away yeah right and it is super hard to watch and it is really really weird how how they're completely unconscious of what's going on and mm. even if you say to them Look, what I think you should do is you should go and start your own club doing this, this, and this. Let me know if you need any help, but I think you could do this on your own. Yeah. Right? Then that just either doesn't register or it registers as he's trying to get rid of me. Yeah. Right? It's teenage brain. It really is. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you just got to hope that in the in the long term they kind of get over it usually around about the time their first senior student leaves them they have some insight into it and 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 you know things you know relationships get get better um right but it's but it's a really common thing and and you know anyone who's running a club for any length of time will probably experience something like it yeah yeah. And it's better and if it, you recognize it as healthy growth rather than, you know, and there's no need, as long as it's a decent person, right? We're talking about a, a good student who has trained hard and da 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 and is you know, generally a good and useful person, right? Right. And then they start getting all sort of sullen and resentful. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. And, you know, eventually they break away. And, and if you just, Take a breath and just recognize that this, they sh- for, for people who are naturally sort of the heads of clubs, it is unnatural for them to stay as a, as a student in a club 
past a certain point. Right. And it's not what they should be doing. Right. I, the best students are, are, well, there's basically two kinds. There's, there's those who will just keep coming week after week, year after year for decades. And because that's what they want. Right. But the, the star students are the ones who will come and they'll train and then they will get fascinated by their own thing and they'll start developing their own thing and then they will break away to do that thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, so this comes around to a question I didn't send you, so, you know, surprise okay. question. Which is on the question of development of an art. Yeah. And... There is that point where, as you say, the star student, or but but also easily just just someone who is ready to internalize and create their own thing. Yeah, you know, and that often comes in the form of teaching, but it doesn't have to. Sure. Um. So I think the question is then, how important is that? Ah, well, I mean, for the long-term good of the art, it's essential. Because, you know, if, if, if all of my students mimicked me, those that are most like me would be fairly decent swordsmen or swordswomen or whatever, right? Those that are not particularly like me, mimicking me is a really bad way to get good at swordsmanship. Yeah. Yeah? And so when it comes to, like, the practical exposition of the art it is essential that people are doing it their way they're they are interpreting it for themselves yeah this is how i this is what works for me that's critically important um and okay my first degree was in english lit and it is well established that there's there is no two copies of the same book okay because every every reading of every book is different. Because yeah. every because the 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 book itself is the thing that happens when the reading brain hits the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also true of historical martial arts. Okay, your reading of Fiore is going to be different to mine. It's going to be different from Michael Tudor's. It's going to be different from Greg Manley's or whoever else. We're all going to see the text differently, okay? And sure, occasionally there are times when you get an opinion and then you, some helpful colleague points out that your opinion is directly contradicted in the text and you just have to change your mind, right? Yeah, that right? But, but <laughs> yes, and it happens a lot in the early stages. But yeah. later on, you can have multiple different interpretations, none of which contradict the text. Yep. And... That is normal and that's to be expected and it doesn't hurt the text in any way. Right. Right? It's not like we have to do Fury exactly this way or Fury is somehow damaged. Right? The book is the same and it'll be the same in another hundred years. Yeah. Yeah? And in a hundred years' time, if people are still reading Fury, as I hope they are, they will be doing it differently. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And... That's okay. Um, I would hope that the, should we say, the conservationist interpretations that we have now yeah. and the conservationist interpretations of 100 years from now will be almost identical. 
One would hope. Right. One would hope. Right. Right. But the the actual fencing that people do based on their study of the text, that is going to be completely individual to the person who is doing the fencing. Yeah. It has to yeah. be. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we're not trying to create mimics. We're trying to create artists. And, you know, in traditional art education, you go to an art gallery and you copy the paintings of the old masters, right? And through that method, you learn about form and line and color and shade and perspective and all these things. And you do it by creating copies of the master's work, right? But you're not supposed to stop there. And anyone who makes a living doing that is a criminal. Yes. Right? Yes. And, it, and it's distinctively not art. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, the, it's the skills of art, right? Yeah. And it's a super useful way to understand how that particular master expressed their art. But if that's where you stop, then you're stuck with being a forger and a plagiarist. Yes. Right? You have to then take that and apply it to your own art. Heck yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. So <laughs> I'm glad right. you agree with me, Jess. <laughs> I complete. I completely agree. I have en- I I have enjoyed this interview because as I'm like, okay, so here's my next question. Then almost about the moment that I think of it, you transition it to answer the question I was thinking of. So you've done great, and uh, <laughs> it's it's like you've been doing this for a year, and you have some skill at it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a lot more relaxing being the interviewee. It's true. It's, it's hard work asking the questions. It is. And to ask interesting and useful questions is very, is very tricky. Yeah. Um, is there anything else on art I think we should explore? I have a lot on that. I've been thinking about it a lot, a lot recently, but I don't know that we need to go into it. Um, blah, 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 blah. So to do a more traditional question, who was your most, to, to talk about your, your podcast, um, who was your okay. most surprising interview this year? And I chose surprising because I don't want to necessarily make a ranking of favorite or something like that. That's not a good word, but who stood out to you this year? Um, okay. Well, when I've interviewed my friends, it's never been a surprise. A delight yeah. and an education, but never a surprise because, you know, they're my friends. I know them. Um, <laughs> so that kind of automatically gets rid of maybe a third of the guests. Yeah. Um, and quite a lot of the guests are people who I interacted with for the first time when I invited them onto the show. Mm-hmm. And... Um, surprising okay I think it would be Ruth Ruth Goodman. yeah I mean we are all fired up about Ruth aren't we well okay this is this is the thing on on our source school discord yeah there have been more comments about Ruth's episode than any other three episodes put together yeah right even your own Jess I hate to admit oh it. I know it's fine. Right, well, I'm okay. And, and, and no, and the, the Discord didn't exist when your episode went live. So there we go. Shut up. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, no, no. But, okay. The thing is, I had never met Ruth Goodman before. I had to approach her through her agent. Yeah. Um, 
which makes for you know it or kind of it makes you think they're likely to be a bit separate a bit standoffish mm. okay um but when we started talking like okay it, it nailed the interview when I asked her where she was in the world as I usually do and she said she was in Wales and I said what part of Wales and she said I'm not telling you that you might come here you'd ruin it <laughs> right. and I was like okay Ruth hey, you've, heard, you've heard it here everyone Wales belongs to Ruth nobody go there ever again <laughs> right. Right. and I was like she was so absolutely natural and absolutely yeah. and she has this fascinating depth and breadth of his experience in actually doing historical activities like making cheese or you know uh, baking bread in a medieval oven or you know just and it's not all just food stuff she does like dance as well and she knows about the clothes and it's just everything pretty much everything except the swords right right uh, it's actually funny at, at to our great the, loss frankly well <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I, she does mention swords in one of her books. And she has this, this section in her book, um, How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England, uh, where she does go into the sword fighting stuff. That's funny. After the interview, she asked me what I thought of that bit. And so we, oh. had, a little, we had a little chat, nice. <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> which was, which was um, interesting. Yeah. So the thing is, because she doesn't do it herself, she doesn't have anything like the nuance for it um but she she surprised me by the way we kind of immediately hit it off with this back and forth and it was just the hour just melted away and it was like oh um okay i suppose we better start thinking about stopping now right, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and it felt like that to listen to. Like, it felt like you guys have been friends forever and we're just right. chatting away. And we've literally and like, never met. Right. And as a person who's who's done a, a fair number of, of uh, interviews as a person being interviewed, mm-hmm. I recognize, like, Guy isn't getting down his list of questions at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Like, but, you know, when, when, when somebody like Ruth is, is talking about the subjects that she's interested in, there's absolutely no sense interrupting her with the question. Right. It's much better just, just to let it roll. I love um, it. I, actually, um, I had a similar experience when I was interviewing Katie Bowman. Now, that episode is probably going to go out after this one. Yeah. So it's coming up. Um, so Katie Bowman, the biomechanist and author of books like Move Your DNA. Um, and again, I had to approach her through her assistant because she's just too busy to handle emails and stuff. And when I emailed her, her assistant, to invite her onto the show, right, I got a reply back like a day later with a picture of Katie holding a sword. <laughs> because her son is mad about swords. I right? love it. And, and so, and so she was like, you know, she was like delighted to come on. And we, we, we chatted for, I don't know, it was an hour and a half at least. Because, you know, Wonderful. again, the time, the time just went away. And at one point, because we were both at standing desks like I am now. And 
she had picked up a like a grip strength ball and I had also picked up a grip strength ball and we were standing here talking and and then her ball kind of wandered into the screen so you know her hand moved so that the, the camera could see it and then I was like oh okay I held up my side it's like we're twins <laughs> it, was, it was it was the funniest thing because we you know we've never met right and and right. it just it was a a super easy and she was very well prepared because I, I sent her the questions in advance and she had clearly spent quite a bit of time actually looking stuff up and you know getting like when we, when we had specific questions about for example like about your shoulder she had mm-hmm. clearly kind of refreshed herself on that specific injury so that she could talk about it in more depth so she <gasps> really she really put in a lot of a lot of work and I was like wow for such such sort of busy people yeah and um, she's, you know, it just went so easily. And it was just such a pleasure talking to her. Um, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not something that can be sort of, you can't really fake it. I don't think. Right. Right. right? No, um, no. I mean, I've had, I've had very sort of professional guests on who have been excellent guests and a delight to interview and, um, you know, an absolute pleasure to talk to and learned a lot and it's great. Mm. But I didn't get the sense at the end of it that we had been sitting around a campfire drinking meat. Yeah. <laughs> right? Whereas yeah. with, with some guests, that just sort of happens. Right. Is, I love yeah. it. I love the idea of um, of that it's just you at a party where you meet a stranger right. and you're standing there and you're just chatting away and that like a microphone just got dropped in that conversation right. and that, that that's the way those win. That's beautiful. Yeah. What skill have you developed interviewing? Do you think now that you've done this for a year? Um, it's hard to say because my, I don't know that my interview technique has gotten particularly better or worse, but because mm. I've done it a lot more, um, I'm perhaps, okay. One thing I have stopped doing largely is making verbal agreement ticks like you normally have in a conversation, right? As you were just about to do. I, right? I resisted it. <laughs> I try right, to yeah. resist it. I try to yeah. resist it. Even this, this is why I'm like constantly nodding and thumbs up. Like <laughs> I know your listeners can't see, but I'm constantly giving like yeah, yeah, facial yeah, yeah, cues yeah. of excitement. <laughs> yeah. Um, and some, so, so I've, I've deliberately, cause very helpfully a friend of mine who listens to the podcast after about six episodes, sent me a page long email saying how I could do it better. Right which was super useful. I mean, and it was, it came from a very friendly place. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, you're not doing a podcast well enough guy. Come on. Um, right. And that was one of the things he said was you don't need to do those verbal interruptions because when you're listening to it, it's annoying. Right. Mm-hmm. Just let the person speak. Um, I think I'm better at getting people. Some people you ask them a question and they answer it in two sentences and stop. Right. right. 
And I think I'm getting better at getting them started again. Because that's a that's skill in itself. Tricky. It is very tricky. And it's, it's actually really tiring. Because yeah. you're, when interviewing, you're trying to get basically the best experience you can for your listeners. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're also trying to have a genuine conversation with the person. And sometimes it's very difficult to establish that kind of connection where there's that back and forth between, you know, that exchange of ideas. So it's not, again, one of the things this chap said was, um, we're also here to listen to you, Guy, because you're an expert in this field. So it's okay for you to talk and stop saying things like, no one comes here to listen to me, which is what I was saying in the beginning. Yeah. Right? Because that's how I pitched it to myself so I wouldn't have stage fright going on. Yeah. Right. So I've persuaded myself. All I'm doing is I'm just setting up the microphones and just asking the questions. And really, it's all on the other person to kind of do it. And I try to stay out of it a bit because I'm really nervous about public speaking and things like that. So mm-hmm. so it, it kind of eased me into it. But it became a, a bad habit. And so I sort of stopped doing that. And also, like the first... 15 or so episodes, maybe 20 or 30, I can't remember, the technical production wasn't nearly as good as it could have been, right? And because I I couldn't even hear it. I'm not really a very um, audio person. I'm much more of a visual person. So, you know, I'll spot a typo in a page of text from across the room. But, you know, I I let an interview go out where my guest was so quiet they could barely be heard and I was speaking in a normal tone. I hadn't balanced the volumes of the two clips at all. And several people contacted me to say, we can't hear it. And so I went in and fixed it. And, and one person actually told me about the problem and then gave me screenshots of like Audacity, the, um, the audio program, how to fix it with screenshots. <laughs> it was like, that was oh, super wow. useful, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I have the best listeners in the world. Um, and... Then I realized, you know, I actually have to learn how to do this a bit. Yeah. So I, I hired uh, an audio an audio person. Basically, he makes his living narrating audio books. His name is Gethin Edwards. So I hired him to give me like a three-hour lesson in how to do the audio mastering for my podcast episodes. And now they all sound much better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, but that actually, that brings me on to something. Okay, go um, at the very beginning of this conversation, we were talking about how I just sort of show up and show up and start doing it as a job and sort of learn on the job. Okay. Yeah. Right. One thing we didn't mention is that from the very, very beginning, like within three months of my school starting, we had our first foreign instructor come and give a seminar. Mm. Right. Okay. And for the next 15 years, at least, we average probably three or four of those a year. Right. And for the first five or six years, when I was traveling to events, what I was really going to the events to do was to find the instructors to come to my school to teach. Right. And I, I, I hired people on reputation. Um, and I, I hired people who I'd met at, um, at these events. And, you know, some of the seminars were just, save me maybe a year's work 
in research. Yeah. And other seminars showed me a really useful way of approaching this material in front of a particular group of students. And all of them added something. There were one or two which showed me very clearly how I should never teach. Like, really don't, <laughs> don't, don't do it that way. That's not, that's not a good way. Um, but basically, what that meant was for three or four weekends a year, I was getting like the best people in, I was, I was getting a seminar from one of the best people in the world in that yeah. field. And sometimes I'd join in with the class whenever that was practical. But usually people would stay for a few days and then we would do some work together one-on-one. -on -one. And sometimes they would stay for the teacher weekend and then the following weekend and in the week between we would you know, be interacting that whole week, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so that was my primary sort of education in the art of arms and how to teach. Not one of those people is responsible for my development, but every one of them helped in my development. And you yourself came and gave a wrestling seminar for me in 2015, I remember. I did. Um, it was so much fun. Right. And the thing is that that's like the hardest thing is if you're at the, if you're the most experienced person in the room, as I was, how do you get better? And the way I got better is I arranged for myself to spend as much time as possible with other people who are good at this. And also I was cross training with martial artists in other fields and, you know, Thing is, if you've taught a Fiori Dagger seminar in a in a dojo that teaches stuff like Eskrima, right, and that's all knives, and they come out of it going, "That was great," right? That, that yeah. tells you something about your interpretation, and it also tells you something about how you're teaching it. Yep. Yeah. So, so kind of getting outside of the kind of narrow historical martial arts thing and actually interacting with the broader martial arts community is also really important. Hugely important. Hugely yeah. important. I would completely agree with that. You know, um, I, and I think that's a reason <clears throat> why it's really important if you can to get out to seminars that have multiple instructors um, sure. is is to be able to get that study for yourself. And I think... Um, but, but, okay, but those seminars with multiple instructors, you generally, generally speaking, you're not spending enough time on one topic to really get anywhere right but what you're seeing is a kind of glimpse of how it can be done right yes. and you're making these connections and you should absolutely be dragging those people back to your den and you know extracting everything you can out of their brain oh i should also mention i went on a um fencing coaches course with the british academy of fencing doing foil coaching now i yeah i used to do foil many years ago but that was five days 12 hours a day of being taught how to coach foil at a higher level. And the thing is, I haven't taught a foil lesson since, I don't think. But that was where I really learned how coaching works, mm. where, where the coach creates the environment in which the desired action works and everything else will fail. And then they make that environment more and more difficult so the student has to be able to keep getting the hit in more and more difficult circumstances so they naturally become better. Yeah. Right? And that 
was like that was transformative for how I teach. Mm. Um, mm. For one thing, like I don't remember the last time I gave a technical correction verbally. Right. Right. I mean, right. Tuck your elbow in. Why would I say that? Why not just create an environment in which the elbow will t- be tucked in naturally? I don't want the yeah. student thinking about their elbow. I want them thinking about hitting me or yep. hitting, hitting the person they're supposed to be hitting. Yeah. 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 It's been, it's been the great quest of my own, my own personal development to learn how to shut the fuck up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's the hardest thing because you want to jump in there and make corrections, but if you just stay out of the way, they'll, they'll do it just fine. Right. Right. If, if you the know, environment I, is good. Right, exactly. Well, I had uh, such a proud moment recently for me in that in that development that uh, a student who's been working with me only since the pandemic, so one on one, right, with masks yeah. and all that sort of stuff, and very limited on what we can work on because we're staying at sword sword lengths, right? So there's, yeah. you know, again, um, and my shoulders busted. So there's been a lot, a lot that has. Um, externally driven this particular gentleman's path of, of development because what I can show him is very limited. Um, but he's been, he's been around for, I don't know, six ish months, nine ish months, something like that. Um, has done a ton of solo work because of the situation has done some paired work with me on and off some paired work here and there. Um, and so, so you would think after six to nine months of like hitting bags with swords, hitting ropes with swords, doing thrusting, uh, targeting on, yes. on, on pendulums, etc., He comes to me and he goes, okay, so I think you need to teach me how to cut now. Yeah. And I was like, hell yes, I do. Let's <laughs> do it. Right. And it was yeah. just so brilliant that, that, that he has accepted that this is just kind of the path. This is the way it's going. And that he's, he's been literally cutting with a sword for six, nine months, whatever. And just now understands, I don't know what I'm doing. Please. Now yeah. I'm ready to hear what, what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was just, you know, I'm very excited about the constraints I've been put under. Cause I think it's made me a better teacher. Actually, there's, I mean, there's a lot of very, very bad things about this pandemic and, you know, people dying and everything. And that's shocking and awful and terrible. Um, but one thing that has really surprised me is how adaptable historical martial arts are to online stuff. Yeah. Right. It's, it's extraordinary. It's, I mean, yes, yeah, some clubs have folded, but most that I'm aware of have not. They are still keeping going one way or another, whether that's getting together for a Zoom half hour sword cutty session in their living rooms every Saturday or whatever it is. And I've developed a bunch of things that I am certainly going to keep going even after, you know, we can travel again. Like, you know, I have a monthly coach's corner kind of class get together thing where we have a topic each month and I explain my view of the topic and then we have discussions and questions and back and forth and what have you and there's a group of usually between like 12 to 16 people there and some of whom have been teaching for 
decades and some have never taught a class yet. But people ask questions. I answer some of the questions. Other people will come in with their own suggestions and what have you. And it, it's creating basically this like this support group for coaches, right? Which is right. which is great. And yeah, you know, I seriously miss having a room full of people to teach. I class instruction is my favorite kind of instruction. Right? I just love having a class. Um, and it is very tiring teaching over the internet, but exactly. there are, but there are things we can do. And, you know, the, the constraints, you know, there are positive constraints and there are negative constraints. And very often the difference between a positive constraint and a negative constraint is how you view the constraint. Right. And if we choose to view this, we can only teach online as an entirely negative constraint, and that is what it will become. But if we say, well, okay, this means I can teach in Florida, which I've never, I've never taught in Florida before. I've done it twice in the last six months because we were doing it over Zoom. Yeah. And they could afford that. Right. Right. And, you know, the last private lesson I taught, um, the chat was in Austin, Texas. Right. And he didn't have to fly me to Austin, Texas, and he didn't have to fly to the UK. And yes, it would be better in many ways if we could do that, but we can still do this and this is still good. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a, a greater life lesson in that. We can still do this right. and this is good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting because I often think of, um, I often think of growing older becoming yeah. injured or having been injured, right? Yeah. Um, in my case, having an, having an incurable disease that will slowly disable me, right? Right. Um, so what is always on my mind is still pursuing your art despite constraints. Right. Um, because, because the reality is, if you do this long enough, you will encounter it. Yeah, you, you will encounter you know, constraints. Yeah, yeah. I, I asked... Okay, um, in like May last year, a student from um, Holland contacted me saying his lung had collapsed. Oh, shit. And nothing, just, just you know, because he's tall and thin and it just happened, right? So he went to the doctors or the hospital and they, they fixed it, they pumped it up again. And, but he wasn't allowed to do any training at all for six weeks. Yeah. So what could he do? So I said, well, you should learn to meditate. So... I created a meditation course because you needed one, right? And we had this series of six classes, one a week for six weeks. And then I created a, you know, created an online course after that and you know, reshot everything. And so we have this meditation course because this guy was injured. Yeah. He now knows how to meditate, right? And I've literally just finished writing a book, which is currently titled The Principles of Solo Training. And I've organized it entirely by constraints, right? So, so the, like the first, after the lengthy introduction, the first thing is meditation because that's what you can do when you can't move and you can't, you, know, you can't, literally you can't get out of bed, right? Mm -hmm. But you can still meditate, okay? Mm -hmm. If you have control of your breathing and ideally some motor function as well, you could do meditation and you could do breathing exercises, Right. 
if you've got control of your breathing and your some motor control or whatever and you've got a bit of space and you can move around there's this joint care stuff you can do and basic physical exercise if you've got a bit more space you can do footwork if you've got a bit more space and a stick you can do these handling drills if you've got a bit more space and a sword you can do these sword handling drills of various kinds and here's a whole bunch of ways you can learn how to train with a sword and then if you've got a you know all of that and a partner then we've got to the end of the book because I'm not interested in that because it's it's too easy not enough constraints <laughs> that's not strictly true I actually have a, I have a sneaky like um, at, at the end at the end of the book it's like okay you probably want to know about pair training so I couldn't put it in a book about solo training but I, I put like a 6,000 word like chapter on pair training on a web page on my website which in the book there'll be a link to it and you can you can find that way so, so it's not to leave people completely hanging but, right. but the point is there are always going to be constraints and while you are conscious, there are things you can do. Absolutely. Right? And yeah, okay, it's easier if you have a sal with a bunch of sharp swords and 20 highly trained students and colleagues and we're all there and we're all doing this stuff and it's great. But there's also, if you think about it, there are all sorts of fencing problems which you have to fix with solo training. You know, where pair drills are not the appropriate solution like you know if your hamstring is too short to lunge properly and you need to lengthen your hamstring that's not a pair drill right right and trying to fix it in a pair drill is a bad it's plan. not really bad plan. yeah <laughs> so so yeah so I'm, I'm i'm very much in favor of viewing all constraints as positive whether they are or not yeah yeah well it's the most useful way to approach them really otherwise right. yeah otherwise you just yeah. have to like you know, sit in the corner having a salt going i can't do my swords anymore yeah yeah i watch a i watch a video i found this channel on youtube of um people that are extremely uh handicapped or have rare diseases or or this mm -hmm. sort of thing and, and this lovely gentleman is interviewing them um but he's talking to a, a man who I, I'm not exactly sure of what his situation is, but he from the outside appears to have arms and a torso, um, but there's no lower body visible right. in his shirt, at least. Um, and he was born that way. Yeah. And he said of himself, you know, I figured looking around at everybody else, there's always something I could find to complain about. So what's the point? Right. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Everybody yeah, has plenty to complain about. Why would I right. waste my time with it? And I just, I was like, yeah, done, done. Yeah. You know, sign me up for your course on life. <laughs> I nailed it right there. <laughs> okay, so we're yeah. hitting the end of our time. So yeah. I think your your question you like to ask everyone is, what is the best idea you never followed up on? Oh, okay, yeah. And, and people fall into two caps. There's either, either... <laughs> um, I always act on all of my ideas ah. that are good or um, I, you know, I have this thing that I always wish I'd done and I haven't done it. And usually for most, for most people, that's write a book, right? Oh, okay. Which, which I, I've done plenty of those, so I'm not, not too worried about that. I am one of those people who has an idea and then just does it. So like, for example, my George Silver project, I had the idea on a Sunday morning 
And by Monday, I had hired the first narrator and I was listening to, well, I'd, I'd, in, I'd offered him the, you know, the, the job. So, you know, could you please like audition for this? And I got the audition in on Thursday and hired him by then. And by Tuesday, the following week, I had Ben Crystal, you know, agreed to do this job and we had a, you know, agreement and his agent had sent me a bill and blah, blah, blah. Right. So right. like that, that went from has never occurred to me to actually in motion in a day. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, when, when the idea strikes, if it's a good idea, you should just do it. Yeah. And I, okay. I'm, but, but okay. I very often do it and it was a bad idea. Yeah. So the, the bias towards action has its downsides Right. Uh, and I will, I will tend to, I will tend to just do it and see what happens. And sometimes I think I really shouldn't have done that. Mm. But I would much rather regret things I have done than things I haven't. Yeah. Have you read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Honestly, I can't stand her. I read. That's fine. I read Eat, Pray, Love, and I just wanted to slap her. Like that's just, fine. Oh, couldn't stand her. I <laughs> empathize with that perspective, but yeah. I will say big magic was pretty cool in that she's talking about the process of, uh, writing a novel, um, of getting an idea of doing it. And yeah. she, for herself, externalizes the idea like it is a sprite or a fairy or a muse. One would say okay. that lands and if you don't act upon it, that will away. move on to somewhere else. It'll go right? find someone grateful. Yeah. Yes. And she says, so this is, you know, whether or not yeah. it's bullshit, whatever. But she she says, this is why so often you will say, I had that idea. Right? Yeah. Well, you didn't act on it. I had that with my card game. Right? Yeah. The single most common reaction I got when I told people, oh, I've created this medieval combat card game. Right. The single most common response I got was, that's so cool. And the second most common response I got was, Joe, I had that idea. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't see your game anywhere. I didn't say that because right. I must be polite. But it's like, yeah, ideas are free and they are super abundant. It's the execution that is everything. And, yeah. you know, and again, not every idea should be acted on. And I've learned that from experience. But, um, but yeah, I, w- I would say that my bias towards action means that I have, there are currently no ideas that I'm sitting here wishing I'd acted on. Beautiful. Beautiful. Cause well, with that, I think we should wrap up our interview, Guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. It's been lovely talking to you as always. Thank you, Guy. And for anyone listening, please check an entire year's backlogs of guys interviews with a variety of swords people and experts in their fields. And we have more coming. Um, obviously the one I'm most excited about is Katie Bowman. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I really should have got Jess to do the outro as well, but <laughs> the interview was a couple of months ago now. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jessica Finley as how could you not? There are reasons why we call her the legendary Jess Finley. 
You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I should also mention here that the crowdfunding campaign for my George Silver audiobook that comes up in the interview is at guywindsor.net forward slash silver. That will redirect you to the campaign. And if the campaign is over, it will direct you to a page of samples and where you can get the finished audiobooks. I would also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their very kind support of the show. It really does help me keep the lights on and to justify the time and expense of running this. So you can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Katie Bowman, who again comes up in this week's episode. Katie Bowman is a biomechanist and an author of several books on the subject. Her work has been influential in my own conditioning routines and general health stuff. And we have a fascinating, wide-ranging, in-depth conversation about her work on biomechanics. So you don't want to miss that. Remember to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show and give it a review if you have a minute. It's very, very helpful. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.